0: Welcome to Orion Valley. Hello, film fans. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect films with fellow film enthusiasts and figure out why we love the medium so much. Today, I have another diary entry for you. This is diary entry number four. I'm going to be covering the films that I watched and logged on Letterboxd through the first half of August. So from August 1st through the 15th, or in this case, the last film I watched was on the 14th. We got some new watches, some rewatches, healthy mix of old and new, I think. Before we dive right in, obviously, I want to say thank you guys for listening to the show. If you like it so much, please comment, rate it, give us a like on your podcasting platform of choice. You can also follow the show on social media, Frankly I Love Movies, on Instagram and Facebook, and frankly underscore podcast on Twitter. And, of course, if you'd like to keep up with what I'm logging on Letterboxd, feel free to follow me, Josh Wall, at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. So, without further ado, let's get right into the diary entry. So on August 1st, you guys may remember uh, in the better half of the last diary entry, I mentioned that um, former film guest Matt Clement was staying with me, started the uh, this diary entry. He was still with me. So uh, on August 1st, we were settling in for a rewatch, just a fun watch. It was a rewatch for me, but a first watch for him, and we wanted something kind of fun. It was our last night, so we wanted to go out with a bang, so we got high, and we watched Anchorman, the first one, The Legend of Ron Burgundy from 2004, directed by Adam McKay, starring Will Ferrell. I don't need to tell you guys what that movie's about. Will Ferrell plays Ron Burgundy. He's a legendary character um, and gets thrown for a loop when he meets and falls in love with his co-worker, Veronica Corningstone, played by Christina Applegate. Um, This is an iconic comedy from an amazing run of comedies and a decade for comedies in the early 2000s. This is, in my opinion, a perfect comedy. It still holds up. I was dying laughing. We had such a great time. There were so many things that jumped out to uh, jumped out at me this time around than they had than they had before. Particularly the um, the prank calling kind of during the second act when they're. Um, when Ron and Christina are butting heads, there's like a prank call section where he is heading t- to, he's saying like, I have, I'm a, I'm a doctor, I have your pregnancy exams and you got knocked up. You better get out of the news. And Christina's like, or Veronica's like, what is your name? And Ron goes, this is Dr. Chim, Dr. Chim Richards." <laughs> it's so good. Like so many constant laughs and just great ideas. I gave it four and a half stars. I gave it the like. Um, and Matt also really liked it he had never seen it which was shocking to me and he loves comedies and um he really enjoyed this and since this is about like the news and media you know it was right up his alley um there are definitely some things that haven't aged great I think um Ben Stiller playing the Spanish language news anchor with you know dark brown skin makeup on is a bit you know is definitely like kind of shocking when you see it now Um, But it doesn't taint the overall experience for sure. Um, It's still incredibly funny. It's just amazing what Adam McKay can do with actual comedy because I do not like any of his recent attempts at social commentary. I don't like The Big Short. I do not like Vice. I hated Don't Look Up. I, I don't like those movies. I like this era for him. I really love Anchorman. Talladega Nights is great. The Other Guys is also really fun. I like all those movies better than Step Brothers. Personally, it's kind of a hotter take. I'm not the biggest fan of Step Brothers. It has its moments, but it's not my favorite of his filmography. Um, This is, though. Anchorman, I think, will go on to be a signature comedy and will always be a signature comedy from this era. So many quotable lines. Also, like it's made with style. You know, it looks good. I'm fairly certain it's shot on film, or at least it looks like it. Um, The quality on Netflix was really good. You know so many good details it's not just straight parody it actually feels like a good niche world to kind of be in in an interesting time period of the 70s um it's like boogie nights but for anchorman essentially you know um but for anchorman and the news and it's just so great and there's so many great performers in it you know Steve Carell always jumps out I really like David Koechner this time around Um, and Paul Rudd and I didn't realize Chris Parnell was in it from Archer so that was a great surprise that he's like um Ed Hurley's assistant you know he's like you poop poop mouth you know (laughs) um that's great um it's just a total blast from start to finish and I hadn't seen it in a really long time so it was nice to kind of you know refresh my memory of certain things and pick up on um certain bits that I had forgotten about and uh Yeah, it's just, it's wonderful. If you haven't watched Anchorman, or if you haven't seen it in a while, definitely pick it up again. It's a great movie to watch with friends, especially if they haven't seen it before. Um, So like I said, four and a half stars, gave it the like. August 2nd. So Matt had left uh, on this day, so I was back to watching movies by myself, and I wanted something new, but I wasn't really sure if I wanted something old, something more contemporary, or um, a recent release. So I was just kind of scrolling around... um, HBO Max, and I came across Unforgiven, the um, best picture winning Clint Eastwood Western from 1992. I had never seen it, um, but I like checking off the best picture winners or any movie that's been nominated for best picture. So I was like, yeah, let's give it a shot. And I didn't really know a whole lot about this movie other than it's kind of like Western, anti-Western, turning the stereotypes on its head kind of thing. If you guys aren't familiar, Unforgiven um, is about Clint Eastwood plays William Money he is a retired killer who gets called into action when uh, a man comes to him and asks for his help to hunt down the men who brutalized uh, and cut up a prostitute. And they go on this journey of revenge and redemption. And I was really excited. I was, I was just excited to see where um, where this was going. And I was a bit disappointed by it I gave it three stars um, I was expecting more from it I knew it was very highly regarded a lot of people think it's one of Eastwood's best if not his best directed movie um, you know one on the Oscar for directing and obviously best picture Gene Hackman won and so I'm, I'm a bit conflicted by it because it's very well made like the directing is great it looks phenomenal the editing which also won the Oscar it, it's really well paced it's really well timed Um, and I just loved watching Hackman. All of the Hackman stuff was great. He is just relishing in this role, and he's got the the appropriate amount of screen time. I mean, him and Eastwood kind of, like, go toe-to-toe with screen time, but he's a character that you want to watch. Like, you really understand the love and the Oscar, and he just, like, kind of takes up the story. I also really like seeing Francis Fisher, Rose's mom in Titanic, and this role is a lot more is is very is much richer than than that role. She's just kinda of disappointed in that in that movie and, you know, classist and in this one she's feels like she's got something to fight for and I really I really enjoyed watching her. Um but they the way that it's edited and the way that it's like directed is that it's kind of cut up in between that storyline with Hackman and the town of Big Whiskey and um, Eastwood and Morgan Freeman and the um I can't remember what the name of the the, the kid is, but they are travelling Um, To the town and I honestly found all the Eastwood stuff to be kind of uninteresting I wasn't really enjoying watching that part of the story and You know a lot of it. I understand that the whole point of it is to turn the tropes on their head and kind of You know uh, subvert the idea of the Western Eastwood is like I don't do that anymore You know, I don't do that anymore Uh, I'm not that kind of guy, you know, I I gave up that life long ago. He says all that stuff, like, a lot. And, like, I get it. I understand you're not that type of guy anymore, and you're going to then turn into that guy. I don't think that's a spoiler, because that's what you're kind of leading to. Um, And I will say, the ending confrontation, like, the whole kind of last 20 minutes, is really great. And I liked what they did with the character, and I thought all of those scenes, like, the climax was really engaging. Um, But the rest of the character arc... Didn't do a whole lot for me, unfortunately. So that gets into a bigger issue I have, and I think that the script is a mess. It's got some good dialogue, for sure, and well-delivered lines. But storylines kind of come and go, and most of the subtext, like any moral or um, conflict that a character has, will be said and told to the audience. But sometimes you don't understand where someone's motivations lie, which I know can be kind of contradicting but that's how the movie is, you know? At times it's like, I gotta do this, I gotta, I'm gonna do that, but, I, but I'm but i not gonna tell you why, you know? <laughs> I think that's the best way to describe it. And, you know, I understand, again, that this has a lot of self-awareness, and that's kind of what won the Academy over and a lot of people over, again, the subversion of the tropes. I was just not really wowed by this. It's got some well-made movie, you know, movie making techniques like I said it looks really good it's it's well paced for the most part and good performances but at the end of the day if I'm gonna go for kind of a mess of a sprawling good time in the old west you know I'm gonna pick Tombstone over this movie and Tombstone we've talked about on this show before is a wonderful movie has a lot of flaws but I like those flaws But this, to me, just kind of missed the mark. So I gave it three stars. I did not give it the like. Maybe when I return to it, I will like it more. Maybe it's one of those things that gets better with age. I don't know. Um, But this was my first watch impression, so unforgiven. Check it out. Let me know what you guys think. Okay, on August 3rd, I was looking for a rewatch, some form of nostalgia. I decided to smoke a little bit and sit down and rewatch The Goonies. 1985 Richard Donner film. I don't think I need to explain to you guys what The Goonies is about either. You probably watched it at one point or another, but in case you didn't... (laughs) So The Goonies follows a group of kids who go on an adventure to find the lost gold and treasure of One-Eyed Willie the night before their town is supposed to be demolished. I guess, all things considered, it is a crazy all-in-one-night movie, which I didn't realize until this time around. Um, I watched this movie so many times I'm surprised my VHS copy still worked after so many years. I loved it as a kid, even though it creeped me out. There are definitely things in this movie that give you an eerie sense. Like the music is pretty interesting, and seeing the, uh, you know, the pirates at the end is is pretty creepy. But I loved this movie growing up. I loved it so so much, and it means so much. And I think that's where this movie really lies for a lot of people, is that. It's incredibly nostalgic. If you grew up with it, your attachment to the movie is so strong because I think Edgar Wright said it best, this is the greatest thing in the world when you're eight years old. And I saw it when I was like six or seven, and it was always like the coolest thing to me. The characters were cool. This is what I thought friendships were like. This was fun to go on an adventure. And it's so great when you're that age. But when you're 24 and high on a random Wednesday night, you know, the movie kind of becomes more like noise than it's anything else. So I I gave it three stars, but I gave it the like for the nostalgia because I still very much enjoyed watching this. And I loved the nostalgia because there were things I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this scene. I remember this scene. I remember this. But there was a lot that I hadn't remembered or actually just completely didn't pay attention to. For example, there's a scene where like the main kid kisses the girlfriend of his brother and it's like the age difference is like what is going on? That's like, there's so many moments you can like smell the scent of a Chris Columbus script throughout the entire movie. It's fucking wild. And it also just like, I think again, kind of going off at that point, nothing in this movie makes sense. Nothing. You leave with so many questions. None of them are answered and they don't make any sense. On top of that, there's so much yelling in this movie. Everyone's yelling. Everyone is scared. Everyone's creeped out or turning around. And yes, they're in very scary situations, but like, so much there's just it's so over the top and insane and i was just shocked i had to play a really long game of like volume control like up and down uh watching in the basement um also chunk i'm sorry is the worst he's super annoying i i get it that he's like technically always right but he's really annoying and it's really hard to kind of stay with him. Again, he is the one who's yelling most of the time. He is yelling so much throughout this movie. It's insane. But again, there is nostalgia there. I definitely had a good time kind of reliving my childhood. But there are just like, again, so many things that stick out to you when you're adult. You're just like, this doesn't make any sense. But I will say the my favorite thing that jumped out at me on this rewatch was that the relationship that M- M- Blanky and Brand Um, their sibling dynamic is pretty much, I think the closest on screen depiction that I've seen of the same dynamic that my brother Zach and I have very similar, like jokey um, kind of ones, you know, ones older, like, ah, dummy on the younger brother, but they look out for each other. They care about each other. They confide in each other. You know, they have deeper talks, like, you know, they're joking with each other, but then he's like, um, thanks for caring. Brandon Brandon's like, no worry, no worry, kid. You know, I'm going to miss this place too. Um, And, you know, that's that's really great to see. So it was definitely like telling like, okay, is this movie the greatest thing in the world? No, it's not. It's I would I would very hesitantly call it a great movie. It's definitely an 80s movie. You can tell it was made in 1985 um, and I respect that. But it's not an amazing movie. Like, it's not really one of the all time greats, I don't think. Like, if people tell me that you don't like it, I totally understand. Um, But I have that attachment with it from when I was young, and it's hard to detach that. But I'm also not, you know, um, I don't think it's void of any criticism or flaws, because it's got a lot of them. Um, But like I said, I still had a fun time. So three stars, I gave it the like, moving on. Okay, I took a little bit of a break. I took a four-day break. And on August 7th, uh, I settled in for a watch of Kiss Me Deadly. I'm currently working on a short film project with my buddy Kevin Shaheen, and he lent this, lent the Criterion Blu-ray of this to me because he said he really liked it. And I was kind of sitting on it for a little bit, but I was like, no, I, I'm having a meeting with him. I need to watch this before I give it back to him. This is a noir film from 1955, directed by Robert Aldridge, and it's all about a guy who gives a hitchhiker from a nearby... A sane Asylum, a ride, and then there is a a car crash, and then a conspiracy starts to unravel that the main detective or private investigator finds himself in, essentially. The thing that jumped out to me the most about this movie is how confusing it is. The plot itself is so layered. There's so many things going on, it really holds your attention, and the way that secrets are revealed, there's a lot of information that you have to connect to, but that is a staple of no- the noir genre, and I definitely found myself trying to check back in the synopsis be like, wait, am I following this correctly? And it's tough to take in everything and piece it all together, but that's what makes this movie so great. This movie, is I said in my review, it's so confusing, but it's so fucking cool. I love it. I love, love, love this movie. its I gave it four and a half stars. I gave it the like. You definitely need to know going in that it is confusing. There's a lot to follow, there's a lot to keep up on, there's a lot of characters. Some of them are only mentioned but you never see them. Um but it is so disturbing and such a dynamite ending that I was just like I was roped in, the whole conspiracy element, the whole um yeah, femme fatale element, like just all the noir staples like you can find them in Kiss Me Deadly. And I really, really loved it. I had such a great time watching it. It was so interesting. And it was a really, like, it was a very engaging experience mentally because I was trying to piece all the pieces together. And I think this movie does reward on multiple rewatches. And I'm so excited to be able to watch it again. It's also a movie that, like, a lot of references started to open up for me. Not necessarily in terms of, like, a Simpsons kind of thing, but, like, to other filmmakers. Like, I think David Lynch loves this movie. And there's so many images and sequences in Lost Highway that he is paying homage to in Kiss Me Deadly. Or paying homage to Kiss Me Deadly in Lost Highway. And it was so cool to see that. It's like, oh my god, yes, this is okay, now I understand that movie a little bit more. Yes, I get it. And yeah, this movie is so great, it's so sleazy, and you care about the characters. There's a lot of I don't want to say empathy, but like well, I guess there is empathy. You understand the characters and you know, you feel bad for the situation that they're in. But you want to see where it goes, you know, it's um, it was just so great. I, I, I even talking about it now makes me want to rewatch it. So I'm very excited to watch it again. It's tough to kind of give a more in-depth review on it right now because it was a first viewing. And again, it was very confusing, but in a positive way because of like, it's not I, I don't want to say it's confusing in that like it, do, it doesn't go anywhere or it goes in so many different places. Like I think it goes linearly, but there's so many elements to it. That you have to put together. So I'm just excited to watch it again. But I loved it. I highly recommend checking out Kiss Me Deadly. I think it's on the Criterion Collection, or it's on it's on it's in the collection. But it might be on the channel. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but like I said, I gave it four and a half stars, and I gave it a like. Okay. Two days later, on August 9th, I did uh, another rewatch. I rewatched all the President's Men uh, from 1976. All about the um, Washington Post's uncover of the Watergate scandal led by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein played you know respectively by Robert Redford and um, Dustin Hoffman I've seen this movie before several times this rewatch was the best time this is a five star movie it gets a like it's one of the greatest movies of all time it's one of the finest American movies ever made because of what it tells you about the 70s, all the paranoia and conspiring and political espionage kind of thing. And I was just blown away by it, this rewatch. And I just, I love the fact that there's so many big names attached to it. You know, Redford, Hoffman, Jason Robards, Alan J. Pakula, William Goldman, Gordon Willis, David Shire, and Robert L. Wolf. They're all credited, and that's not even really scratching the surface as to why this is one of the all-time greats. I don't want to say too much more about it because we may be talking even more in depth about it on this show soon. So that's all I'll say. But this is if you've never seen All the President's Men, please, please watch it. It is a movie that only gets better with age and it gets better the more times you watch it. It's an incredibly informative movie and it is incredibly intense. So please check it out. i got four more films to talk about. On August 12th, I went to the theater I had a day off and I decided to take in a film at the theater. I wanted to see something new, so I went to go see Bullet Train. i had heard some things about this. Some people like it, some people didn't. This is the new film starring uh, a lot of people. Brad Pitt, Brian Tyree Henry, uh, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Joey King, Logan Lerman. Lots of people. uh, All taking place on a high-speed bullet train uh, in Japan. Like an assassin-type action movie. Uh, I was definitely interested a little bit in this movie going in because I had some friends that really liked it. Um, You know, I really like Brad Pitt. I like most of the people in it. Uh, And I was just looking for like a fun time at the theater, you know, get some popcorn, sit in a big theater and just kind of sit down and enjoy myself. And uh, I did not like this movie. I really didn't. I gave it two stars. And that's kind of being generous, honestly, because I wouldn't say I hate it. But this movie is quite bad. My thing with it is that, like, so I I wasn't super excited to see it, like, off the bat because I don't like the song "Staying Alive, and it's used in the trailer, and I saw the trailer, like, over and over and over again, but I wanted to go in with an open mind. I wanted to be ready to have fun, and I will say there are definitely a few moments of action that I did enjoy. There are a couple sequences. I'm like, okay, this is pretty fun, but those are few and far between, and they don't last that long because this movie is constantly trying to convince you that it's cool like there are so many things and stylistic choices and narrative structural decisions that have the subtext of saying to the audience this is cool don't worry we're still cool don't worry and it isn't you know it's like the story jumps back and forth to give you um, exposition on certain characters that's not needed certain characters just don't need to be there at all like there are several characters And I won't say which ones, but there are several characters who are only introduced to be killed. That's it. And there's so many flashbacks and there's so much exposition and, you know, reminding you of things that we already know and that we could pay attention to. Like, you don't need to pay attention too much to get everything. Like, the movie is a little over two hours. I think it's like 40 minutes too long. This is an hour and a half movie. That they stretched to two hours because they felt like they didn't trust the audience. That the audience wouldn't be able to follow and they, they, what you need to pay attention to, the movie moves your attention to that thing. So you could be like, so like, for example, so like, you know, whole thing with like Chekhov's gun or whatever, you know, if you introduce a gun in the first act, it has to fire by the end of the third. So let's just say it's a gun, right? You notice that, okay, the camera's like, this person has a gun and you know that. But then, like, 20 minutes goes by, and before the gun is used again, someone will say, like, oh, yeah, remember this person has a gun. Like, someone will actually say that. And it's like, I know. Don't stop the movie. Just keep moving forward. (laughs) Like, it's just really bad storytelling. And it's not trusting of the audience or yourself as a storyteller, because the stuff that they call back to and remind you of are things we all know and that we remember they're pretty easy to pick up on. You don't need to go back. You're just wasting time. And it starts to get long after that, especially the third act. The third act of this movie is insane because it doesn't need to be there. More and more characters are introduced that like you completely like forgot we're in there because they're non characters. And then this whole like other storyline that gets like mentioned throughout, you know, the first two acts, you're like, oh, this is what this is leading to okay, I understand you want an action scene, but this doesn't make any sense narratively, and it's really boring. And, oh my God, the green screens in this movie. Oh, it's so bad. It's so awful. Like, it was hard to look at at points. Especially in the third act. It was so bad. And there were, like, the performers that, like, it's very clear that Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brian Tyree Henry are having fun, and I liked watching, you know, them play off of each other i think aaron i think both of their accents are really bad i know aaron taylor johnson is amp like amping his um british accent and it's too much and brian tyree henry doesn't have a british accent and his is what it's super obnoxious and annoying and they never stop talking about thomas the fucking tank engine why it's so annoying i hated it i was so frustrated because it, it was just annoying trying to be funny but it's not I guess that's kind of like the the David Leach special. Like, same with Deadpool 2. There were so many jokes in Deadpool 2 where you're like, Jesus Christ, this is not funny. Um, But, like I said, there are some things that you can latch on to. Some of the action is okay. Um, also, Joey King has a British, who I usually like, but, like, she has a British accent in this movie, and that doesn't make sense once you find out specific pieces of information about her. And all they would have to do to justify that is, like, add one piece of information about her and they don't do that so I was just like confused and there were so many cameos in this movie all of them were worthless and just like wasted like I could not get out of my seat fast enough when this movie was done I know there was a post credit scene because I heard it As I was leaving and I didn't turn around and watch it because I don't care I also just don't care about post credit scenes anymore but this one I was like I don't want any more of this movie I do not need any more information nothing that is in this post credit scene is going to make me enjoy it even more I know it and I haven't even looked up what it is because I didn't care about this movie I did not like it so like I said I gave it two stars if you guys like it and are having fun that's great but I just could not stand it so I technically did like kind of a double feature on this day because on uh, so on August twelfth, uh, later that night I went to go see um, Lexi Cutmore, former film guest, and her um, and her boyfriend Jason. Uh, we were going out and having a good time, and then when we got back, it was later in the night. You always kind of put on a movie when you're kind of hanging out, and Lexi had mentioned that a, a childhood favorite of hers because her um, uncle or grandfather I can't remember said she, uh, loved the movie Howard the Duck. I had never seen it. I had only heard about it from uh, one of those like 50-minute, like worst movies of all time, special things. And Howard the Duck was on there, and I always knew that it was kind of one of those like, you know, infamously bad movies. So I sat down and gave it a watch. I did not watch all of it. We did not get to the end because we were starting to fall asleep and it was time for bed. I think we had like maybe 30 or 40 minutes left, so we watched like a fair amount of it, but we couldn't finish it. It was that we were just too tired. Um, So I, I did. I didn't feel right rating it. So I have no stars. I didn't give it a like um, because I didn't finish it. But I got a good gist of what the movie is about. This movie is bananas. I was not expecting it to be this crazy. Like this paper mache duck. It's horrifying. It falls in love with uh, Marty McFly's mom. I can't remember what her name is. Um, I was just blown away that this movie exists and that people wanted this for Like, they were marketing this towards kids, and that this is a Marvel property. Like, this movie is insane. It's so, so trying to be sexy, and trying to be cool, and trying to be interesting, and it's just weird. It's so weird that this movie exists. Every choice is strange. It's really hard to explain, honestly. It's hard for me to put into words, because, like, I feel like I'm still processing how insane this movie is, like... Immediately from the first time Howard the Duck, the titular character, shows up on screen and it's this puppet paper mache thing, my mouth was on the floor. I was like, What? This is what this is? This is what this movie is? Are you kidding me? I couldn't believe it. I was not expecting it to be. I thought it was going to be like cheesy and just bad and like just. I thought it was like a Super Mario Brothers thing, you know? Like the, the Bob Hoskins, John Leguizamo movie. I thought it was going to be something like that. Like that movie, people are having fun. It's not very good. It doesn't work. But this is just like crazy that this movie exists and that you can watch it. Um, So maybe I will finish it one day, but I think I need to still kind of digest what this was because I was just I was stupefied that this movie is an actual thing. I can't believe it. So, like I said, I didn't feel right giving it uh, a rating or a like or anything like that because I didn't finish it, but I wanted to log it. So, yeah, Howard the Duck, 1986. What a film. All right, finishing off this diary entry, I have two rewatches to talk about. Uh, The first one being Dazed and Confused, Richard Linklater's 1993 Hangout Stoner classic about the last day of school at a high school in 1976. Um, This movie is amazing. It's so special and so lovely. The reason that I rewatched it, though, is because I have been, over the past couple months, reading the um, the book All Right, All Right, All Right, which is the oral history on the making of Days and Confused, and it goes through the pre-production process, the production, the post-production, you know, the legacy of it, how it got to be such a cult classic, the troubles that it went through in production. It talks a lot about Linklater as an, as, a, as an artist and how McConaughey went to iconic status, and it has testimonials from everyone who was involved and was able to give an interview. So a lot of the actors, a lot of the creatives, Um, and it gives you, it gives you a really good sense of what this movie, you know, why this movie is so special, but also like what went into it. You know, I really loved the stuff about, you know, Linklater starting off with slacker and what, you know, he defined himself as an artist as, and what he was going for. Cause he was kind of this like Austin, um, you know, hippie kind of early hipster Archetype, you know, he was. He didn't want to make a big Hollywood movie, he wanted to stay in Austin and make stuff by himself. He wasn't trying to sell out, but he got money from Universal to make this movie and back in Austin the way he wanted to make it, but still went through so much, um, you know, so many production troubles. And seeing the ups and downs, and the changes, and the, and the you know the personalities, and how special this set was, and how like the cast lived in a hotel and were constantly hanging out and just making relationships with one another that lasted forever. And people didn't want to leave this set. People thought this was the greatest summer ever, and you see how this affected them at such a formidable time in their lives because they didn't want to. Go to school. They thought this was the greatest thing ever. Nothing is going to compare to this. I need to start working. I feel like I've just aged so much through this process in a good way um, to some. And for some, it was a negative effect. Um, So I would highly recommend checking that book out. It's fascinating. It's a really great read. It's a great story. Has some very good emotional moments. Um, I will say I really loved the person who I really loved reading about the most was Jason London, who plays um, Randall Pink Floyd in the movie. And hearing about what his relationship to the movie was, and how his process was on set versus how it was after they got like they got famous and had a reunion, and his relationship to—I think it's really interesting. Um, so I highly recommend checking that out. But reading all of those stories and understanding how the um, the production worked and the relationships that they had and how there was drama between some of the girls on set and, you know, some of the guys like didn't like each other. And there was this one guy that everyone didn't like. Um, and then seeing the movie in that context made it so much more special because I saw this the first time I watched this was when I bought the criterion um, back in 2020. I'd never seen it before then. I'd never seen it in a group. I've still never seen it in a group setting with friends, smoking or drinking or whatever. Um, And yeah, it was just so much better this time around. I, I remember really liking it. I was like, yeah, this movie's really cool. But I think this time I was like, this might be the coolest movie I've ever seen because every character, even though these characters are, you know, they're real and so they have flaws and they're kind of shitty, at times you're like, these people are so fucking cool. I want to hang out with them. And that's why you watch this movie because it's a hangout movie and you think these people are your friends. You know, it hits that level of nostalgia, even though most people watching it or like, you know, in my generation who watch it, you know, didn't grow up in the 70s. But like high school is such a formidable time. And it takes you back to those summers of being a kid and trying to make relationships and just having memories of just the day, just full days with your friends. And also, I mean, you know, the iconic status of some of the actors in this movie, obviously McConaughey, it's still so great to watch him. And but it was really just super satisfying to read all these stories and understand these people as artists and figure out where they all were at this point in their careers. And then to watch it all come together in this hour and, you know, 45 minutes or however long the movie is, was incredibly satisfying. Also, I will say so the criterion for this comes with, you know, a booklet of essays, but it also comes with a poster. The poster is um, a bunch of uh, yearbook photos of everybody in the cast. And then this, um, this, like the seventies car that opens the movie. I can't remember what the type of car it is. I'm not a car guy, sorry. Um, but in, and then the, the famous poster for it, um, that everyone knows about is the big smiley face on the center of the poster. And there's a whole section of the book in like in the post-production section, where Linklater had to really fight for the poster because he didn't like that smiley face he thought it would. Um, he's, it's missing the point. Um, and he really loved that yearbook photo one and um, Gramercy Production is, the, is Universal's um, independent company that put it out. Um, they said, no, we don't like that poster. And they scrapped it. And he said he always loved it. And he, it re- link later, whenever someone wants them to sign a dazed poster with the the smiley face, he like defaces it and like, you know, draws like kind of funny graphics on it because he hates that poster. And so, to, and I didn't know that that poster came with it. So I, I took the poster out and I was like, oh, there's a poster in there. Oh, no, is it that? And I unfolded it and I was like, no way, it's this poster. And understanding that significance of it, it honestly made me feel really great just as an artist and again like appreciation for criterion and like just an artist's work is that like that's the legacy people are going to know you know this poster and this is included in this poster is important and it was great to preserve that and to understand that legacy of it and it may be a small thing but after reading that book and seeing that uh it filled my heart with so much love and this movie is just amazing if you've never seen days to confuse please 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 watch it Five stars, absolute like. That's a full star up from the last time I reviewed it. The last time I reviewed it, I gave it four stars. This was absolutely a five star. And like I said, definitely check out the oral history book. It's probably one of the best movie, best books about a movie that I've read. It's called All Right, All Right, All Right, The Oral History of Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused by Melissa Mares. So check both of those out. All right, last movie. Speaking of Criterion, I recently picked up um, during their flash sale the three Douglas Sirk films that are on, uh, on the, in the collection, which is All That Heaven Allows, Magnificent Obsession, and Written on the Wind. Uh, so I rewatched All That Heaven Allows. Um, I actually watched it for the first time a few months ago, I think in April, maybe? Yes, on April 6th, I decided to kind of just on a whim watch this, and I was just blown away by this movie. I couldn't believe how much I loved it. And it's so beautiful and just a really great story. I love the melodrama, but there's a lot of darkness. And I was excited to rewatch it because it's like, okay, I have the physical copy. Is it just as good? And it was just as good the second time. This is a five-star film. This is an absolute, like, um, it follows, uh, it's a really interesting story. It's So it's in 1955. It's about Carrie Scott, who's kind of an upper... Um, class like wealthy widow who falls in love with Rock Hudson, who is her much younger kind of down to earth gardener, and there's like you know kind of social unrest uh, around this relationship. So it Douglas Cirque dealt in this time with a lot of you know melodrama, and uh, it can get kind of soap opery, but the world is so beautiful. It's a world you want to be in. It looks so great, and um, it's shot so well and it's all in the fall and the scenery and like the fall and the winter the scenery so great but there is a lot of darkness to it and there are you know I think a couple different readings of the movie where you could say like oh did she get what she wanted and that's kind of a downfall or is it like yay she got what she wanted that's great like yeah you don't really know um but this time around what really struck me was that I I I knew, I felt like I was connected to my grandparents while I was watching it because I feel like they would have loved this movie because I don't know if they had seen it or if they knew who Douglas Sirk was. I know they knew who Rock Hudson was, but I don't know if they'd never, they'd ever seen this movie, but I know they would have loved it and they would have connected with it, which makes me kind of love it even more and kind of feel closer to them. And I, I know melodrama is not for everybody and you know, movies in the fifties can turn people off, but this movie is alive. It's a very rich text. The acting's great. The story is very engaging and interesting. You know, it's Douglas Sir can be a film school favorite or like a director's favorite. Um, but he's really good at blocking actors and filling the frame and putting like a touch of darkness. He's really hiding darker themes in this movie that I really appreciate and. Um, and I just, I, I fall, I fell head over heels for this movie when I first watched it, and it was so great to re-watch it. I can't wait to watch his other films. Like I said, those are Magnificent Obsession and Written on the Wind. Written on the Wind may be his most famous film. It's probably between that and All That Heaven Allows. Um, but like I said, I haven't seen those other two. Um, but this Criterion Blu-ray was fabulous. It looked really great. It sounded really good. It played really well. The other time I just watched it on the uh, the channel when they had like a few Douglas Cirque films on there. Uh, and I'm just excited to delve deeper into his filmography because he's a really interesting artist and is in, you know, was attributed or attached to a subgenre that I don't know that much about or have that much connection to, but I'm starting to get more of one because of how, you know, I like drama and I like personal stories with dialogue. And that's you know what this movie is and it's so lovely and it's got a lot of heart and it's really romantic and I I don't know I just my heart feels full watching it because of how alive and truthful it feels <laughs> so that's all that heaven allows from 1955 and like I said five stars and I gave it the like that's it guys that's it for the diary entry we went through nine films today that that is a lot. Um, I was a little nervous that I wasn't gonna get there because the tell you what, the last few weeks have been very busy. Lots lot's been going on. I'm gearing up to go on vacation. Um, probably I'll be there the week that this comes out, um, which is another caveat to say, I don't know how many films I'm gonna have for the next diary entry, so it may be a bit shorter, but I will definitely have the second half of August diary entry out um, very soon for you guys. Uh, thank you guys again so much for listening. I really appreciate um, you guys sticking by me and I hope you guys are enjoying this these dire entries and new form of content. Let me know if you guys are. like I said, give me uh, give me a like, comment, and um, you know subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice and be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram, frankly, I love movies, and at frankly underscore podcast on Twitter. Thank you guys so much. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies.